0: the bio insights podcast episode is called Avian Influenza and the Risk of Pandemic. I'm Charlotte Barker and today I'll be speaking with Mathilde Richards, Principal Investigator and Associate Professor in Virology at Erasmus MC. We'll be discussing her work investigating antigenic evolution of avian influenza viruses, the prospects for better vaccines and the need for proactive measures to ensure global preparedness in the face of evolving influenza threats. Thank you for joining me, Mathilde. Okay, so let's start off then with a little bit about you. Um, how did you get initially involved in the field of virology and specifically in studying um, avian influences?
1: Yeah, so actually I have a bit of a funny, uh, uh, let's say, academic background because I'm a, a biotechni- well, biochemist, actually, by training. So I'm a biochemist engineer, so I did a master in engineering in France in an engineering school um, and then very early on I realized that I didn't want to work in any company I didn't want to work in the private sector um, I was not necessarily very much interested in engineering actually <laughs> um, so the last year of my master's I actually did another master in parallel which was in, uh, in on microbiology uh, doing a research master that because I already thought okay I, I really want to try to do research yeah. um, and so it was a bit of a Sort of like a big jump from you know biochemistry to really microbiology and even virology. I already did at that time uh, during my masters a internship on influenza viruses, and I I thought it was very interesting. I was in general interested by RNA viruses because they evolve quite a lot as compared to DNA viruses. And I think flu viruses are the viruses that that everybody has heard about and and really sort of cause current issues, whether those are coming from the the, the seasonal uh, epidemics or coming from the pandemic threat. So those viruses are just constantly on the move. And I thought it was very interesting. So I started to do my PhD first, uh, also on influenza viruses, but focusing on seasonal influenza viruses, um, and especially looking at uh, resistance of uh, uh, influenza viruses to antivirals. I moved to Netherlands about 13 years ago already to do my postdocs, and there I was really sort of interested to see how indeed research was done in other countries, but I also wanted to then continue working on influenza viruses, but move away from the, the seasonal viruses, which, of course, have a a tremendous impact, but I was very much fascinated by these highly pathogenic, even influenza viruses, because they are, of course, a threat for uh, animal health. They are devastating for poultry uh, health, uh, but also because of the possibilities of these viruses to infect humans. Um, So I was very much fascinated by how, you know, those very small viruses can actually cause so much disease. So and so during my postdoc, I, I did a lot of work on actually trying to understand the, the determinants of adaptation of avian influenza viruses to infect a human host, but also to, to transmit uh, among humans. And after that, I started my own team back in 2018, with like on funding, uh, also on, on high path flu, but they're looking more at basically the emergence of these viruses, so how they emerge, how they transit from the low pathogenic forms to the highly pathogenic forms, and then further on on the antigenic evolution of these uh, of these viruses.
0: So then for, for readers who aren't working in the area of flu and might not sort of have a full understanding of that, can you give some background then on the current sort of high path flu uh, subtypes and particularly those that are most of concern for human health?
1: Yeah, so at the moment, uh, the subtypes are the most of concern, are the H5N1 viruses. So this virus is actually, uh, at least uh, one of the protein of these viruses, the hemagglutinin, uh, comes from a long-standing lineage of, of high-path viruses, what we call the Goose wanong lineage. And those viruses, they first emerged in 97 in Hong Kong. At the time, they caused human infections. And it was very much surprising because it was the first time that there was direct human infection with a mm. avian influenza virus. And what happened then in, in Hong Kong back um, back in 97 is that they basically called all the poultry in Hong Kong and they mm. thought they got rid of the virus. But actually, the virus had been uh, circulating in some uh, wild birds uh, in China, actually, in some reservoir. And therefore, the virus re reemerged in 2002. And after that, basically further spread in Asia, went into Europe back in 2005, 2006. Mm-hmm. And after that, so this was still an H5N1 virus. Um, but after 2014, 16, the virus started to basically reassort. That's what we, we call reassortment, basically exchanging, getting um, gene segments from different uh, low pathogenic, even influenza viruses, because these viruses also started to infect wild birds occasionally. And this is where it started to to become a little bit berserk, actually, already. So there was a a specific subclade of the hemagglutinin, 2344B, which then actually re-emerged back in, yeah, There was several outbreaks, um, 2016-17, and at least as well 2020-21. And since 21, these viruses have basically become endemic in wild bird populations. So, uh, before that, we were facing you know, outbreaks in poultry. The virus was endemic in poultry, and there was some sporadic outbreaks in wild birds. But since 2021, the virus really is endemic in wild birds. It has then further spread as well from Europe uh, to uh, America, and also now South America, and even Antarctica, recently, last year. So, the virus is very much spread uh, throughout the world, unfortunately. And it's not, me- not more confined just to poultry population. And that is back to being an H5N1 virus. Um, that is really the one that has now been uh, sort of circulating esten- extensively. So this is what we call a-, a panzootic virus because it's everywhere. It's like sort of a pandemic, but for animals. It's everywhere in the world. And so it's in fact infecting a lot of different species. And I- actually not only bird species, but there's been as well some inf- uh, outbreaks in wild carnivores. So that would be, for instance, foxes or pork uh stone martins, for instance, but also then marine mammals. So you may have heard of devastating outbreaks in uh, South America, for instance, in Peru or in Chile, where there's been uh, sea lions, for instance, being basically infected and massive dives of penguins as well. So it's a lot of different species that that can be infected. So that's basically the current situation, which is it's never looked as bad as it as it is now, unfortunately. Yeah, and f- so those are really the virus of concern, I would say. I mean, we shouldn't forget about the H7 and nine viruses that are still in China to a certain extent. So these viruses they emerged in 2013 in China. They also caused a lot of human infections, so five waves of human infections. And after that, China started to vaccinate poultry populations and the virus sort of slowly at least disappeared. <laughs> Uh, But it's not fully extinct. Um, So there are still some reports coming from China of viruses that are still circulating to a certain extent. And because as well of vaccination, basically viruses are further evolving. So this is something we should still keep an eye on.
0: I wanted to ask a little bit about what you're working on right now. What sort of projects are your team working on? And what's your main focus currently?
1: Yeah, so my team is really working on two lines of research. So the first one is really understanding, spready fundamental research, really understanding how these high path form Uh, flu viruses emerge. So the transition from low to high path in birds, and that's mediated by basically just a small change in the hemagglutinin protein. But for very long, the actual molecular mechanism behind that genetic change was unknown. So my team is really focusing on understanding that we actually put last week a a paper on BioArchive where we have found a mechanism for um, that transition, at least one of the two putative mechanisms. And we're also trying to understand why these viruses originally only emerge in poultry and not in wild birds. And also several aspects related to the fact that only H5 and H7 viruses so far have been shown to evolve to high-path flu. And so that sort of subtype specificity we're also very much interested in. And so that really is sort of fundamental understanding of the biology of the virus, but also will help us hopefully to, you know, maybe further mitigate those outbreaks and those emergencies. So that's one part of my team. The other part of my team is trying to understand the antigenic evolution of those high-path viruses. They're very much focusing on the h 5 from the goose quantum lineage virus that I was referring to, because those are, of course, the ones that we should really be careful with and and keep an eye on. So these viruses, because they've been circulating extensively in in birds for the last more than 20 years, actually, more than two decades, the main antigens of the virus, they have evolved at the genetic level, but also at the antigenic level. And so at the moment, there are actually uh, different, what we call antigenic variants. Uh, circulating in different parts of the world. And so that means it's very difficult for us to sort of prepare for a potential potential pandemic because it's not that we will have one vaccine that will protect against all. So what we're trying to do is to first really understand the antigenic evolution. And we know that's happening basically as well because the WHO is issuing uh, every six months a report on the antigenic evolution of those zoonotic uh, viruses. It's not just restricted to H5 viruses, but also other threats. But let's say that a global overview and really powerful tools for us to monitor antigenic evolution of the viruses are still missing. So we have basically used antigenic cartography, which is a tool that was developed by Ron Fouchier here at the Erasmus MC and Derek Smith in, uh, in Cambridge to basically visualize the antigenic evolution of viruses. And we've done that for um, H7 viruses, which is H5 viruses. And we're also trying to understand the the, the mutations in hemagglutinin that may mediate those uh, antigenic differences. So that would allow us as well to sort of flag viruses with certain mutations as potential new variants as well in the future. And also, we've been using these uh, antigenic maps to design broadly reactive antigens. We can also use these maps to visualize antibody responses. So we do a lot of work in animals. Uh, We're also looking to test some of our antigens in humans as well in a clinical trial. And the idea is that you can basically just sort of visualize the antibody responses of a certain individual uh, using these antigenic uh, landscaping tools. And that is very powerful because you can also have an idea of how broad the immune response is. And we have a a set of uh, viruses that that I think no one has to be honest, it's it's a very large set of viruses that are very much representative of the current diversity as well. Um, So these are the two sort of focus of my team.
0: How can the work then be applied to develop more effective vaccines? Can you tell me a little bit more about that
1: side of the work? Yeah, so, you know, of course, it, it, is, it is very hard to design good vaccines against influenza viruses because they are so variable. There's been a lot of effort in even trying to get a fully universal flu vaccine. So that means that one that would actually be protective against any kind of flu subtype, whether it, was, it would be seasonal or from animal reservoirs, well. uh, Focusing basically on parts of the viruses that change a bit less uh, than, than basically the, the main immunodominant parts of, of the virus. And some of that work is is quite promising. It also sometimes is is still very difficult because those parts are more conserved. They're also not really immunogenic. So that means that if you try to have an immune response against those, they are just not super strong. And that's the reason why they're conserved. (laughs) So that's a little bit of like, you know, the chicken and the egg issue. (laughs) And so I think what is sort of more realistic at the moment, and of course, we should still... Try to pursue the idea of having a universal flu vaccine but I think what is a little bit more realistic at the moment is to try to have at least a subtype road or subtype you know universal um, uh, vaccine within the subtype. I think that's, that's, that's something that we are trying to do at least with H5 uh, by basically understanding first what mediates antigenic phenotype in these hemagglutinins but also how we can basically increase the, the immunogenicity uh, so just the height of the response, but also the breadth of the immune response. I think what is also very important is, is of course, the platform that is being utilized. And with the recent rise of mRNA vaccines, there's a lot to do there to explore for influenza viruses, which is, you know, cu- currently on, on the way as well, by several companies, but also researchers. And so I think what is lacking from the traditional uh, inactivated vaccines is T-cell responses, for instance, are most of the time almost in existence in these inactivated vaccines. So we can basically also, for sure, because T-cell responses, to its extent, can be a little bit more conserved than than, uh, antibody responses. So that's something that we should for sure bet on. uh, And I think really try to have something that elicits both the, let's say, the B-cell and the T-cell arm of the uh, immunity. Uh, A lot of people either focus on antibodies or (laughs) T-cells. because that's what they've been doing and that's what they're good at. But I think we should Mm -hmm. just sort of start working more together and and try to get really good vaccine that elicits both and really trying to make the most out of it. So yeah, for what we are doing is really sort of having good, we design good antigens that we hope to be able to sort of combine with powerful platforms that would then just help us to get a better immune response as well.
0: And if I spoke to you again in five years' time, where do you hope mm-hmm. that you would be with that project and with the other projects that you're working on?
1: Yeah, so with that project on the antigenic evolution in five years, I hope we'll have done a clinical trial on the one of our, what we call antigenically central antigens. So, as I said, those are antigens that are centered in antigenic space and that give quite a broad immune response. And so, it hopefully, it would protect against a wide range of uh, antigenetically diverse viruses. Uh, So yeah, we have plans to do a clinical trial. I hope we will have done it to see as to whether what we have seen so far in animals would actually also apply in humans. Because, yeah, so that's one thing. And uh, so we have basically engineered uh, hemagglutinins in such a way that we get a a better immune response, but we do not yet understand the mechanism behind it. So I hope that in five years, we have more understanding of you know, how the changes that we have introduced in those antigens actually uh, boost immune response. Um, that's my hope as well. And I hope as well, that's very ambitious, I think, in five years, but to to see as to whether this the knowledge that we have on H5 could actually be also applied to other viruses and whether this is something that we could also use to design better H7 vaccines. That's for the antigenic evolution part for the emergence part in five years. But we have now a very good mechanism for basically the transition from low to high path. So basically the difference between low and high path is the multibasic sites in the hemagglutinin. And that multibasic sites is basically the result of insertions of nucleotides. And those nucleotides can be inserted either by basically the polymerase duplicating sort of neighboring parts, sort of reading again the template and sort of adding nucleotides that's one mechanism and now we have sort of found a good explanation for that mechanism that's the paper i told you about that's the uh, in bioarchive uh, that we put in bioarchive last week and so on that work we have for sure way more questions um, to refine the model to to understand whether there are so differences in different species so i think we have plenty of work to do on that line of of work but what I would like to be able and to maybe have achieved in five years is to understand the other mechanism. And the other mechanism is non-homologous recombination between the hemagglutinin gene and RNA coming either from other parts of the virus genome or from the host. And no one has any idea of how that works. Uh, so we have some some clues I recently got funding to also study that. And so I hope in five years we have at least some better ideas about, you know, how that works and whether we can, you know, really pinpoint there as well, the molecular mechanism. Very ambitious for five years.
0: It's good to be ambitious. Um (laughs) so and a bit more of a I suppose a bit of a speculative question and I expect some people do do ask you a lot, but um are we doing enough to prevent or prepare for a possible influenza pandemic as someone who's working in that field?
1: Yeah, it's it's a difficult question. Um, I think we're not doing enough. I I think that it stems from the fact that I think the way we do research. I, I love my my work, but I think sometimes it is not. Uh, how to say that it is it, it is not necessarily offering the best possibilities for for global outcomes. You know, because we have to focus on on our own careers. We have to get funding for our research. We sort of basically have to survive one way or another. And that doesn't always give space to actually, and time and money to, I think, answer questions that are really um, at stake, I would say, in a coordinated fashion. So I think what is what we are missing is coordinated actions. And I think for that, it needs to come as well from governmental institutions that would found you know, large consortiums. To really be able to do, and and of course there are some of them, don't get me wrong, I mean there are many of them, but the way it is done and the way that that we have to do research I think sometimes doesn't allow us to take the time and and have the freedom to be able to investigate uh, in a coordinated fashion, so instead of just all doing the same thing. <laughs> I think it would be better that we would uh, try better to, you know, sort of like bring people together with different expertise and, and really start to address those big questions in, yeah, I think, I think that the right terms is coordinated actions. I think, I think that's what's missing. So mm-hmm. yeah, one, we think that after the COVID pandemic, there would be still, still a lot. Uh, and there are, of course, some of these programs, but I think we could do more, and I think that we would need to do more. So one of the big issues of how, yeah, what we are confronted with uh, with these outbreaks of emerging viruses is that we are always too late. You know, so the way we approach it is, is very reactive, because we do not really have any choice at the moment. You know, what happens is that there is an outbreak. By the time you get the virus to study it, by the time you have people that have time to study it. <laughs> It takes a whole lot of time. So now, for instance, we have in my team characterized what we call recent viruses, but they're still a year or two years old, actually. So really to keep up with the evolution, it's extremely difficult. I mean, it's already difficult for seasonal viruses as well. That's why as well for seasonal viruses, we always, you know, a, a season light when we make the change in the vaccine composition, because you can just basically learn from what has been circulating and it's hard to predict the future. Now, this is something that uh, we are working on to try to sort of predict the, the evolution for the seasonal viruses to be able to sort of like look in the future and design vaccines from that perspective and move away from that reactive sort of approach. And so this is what we are confronted with as well with these uh, emergent viruses. And and it's hard to do better <laughs> because I think we would need to have way more knowledge of the sort of the, the genetic basis of, of antigenic change in these viruses, but also of the, the genetic basis for the phenotypes that we know are important for adaptation to mammals. Um, and, and once we know more and more and more and more, we might be able to then, you know, apply certain form of AI, maybe to be able to sort of screen in a, in a higher throughput uh, the viruses that are currently circulating, not the one that circulated six months ago. <laughs> so we're always sort of running behind. And so I think we have to really work tremendously to to sort of change that and and try to keep up with the evolution, or even try to somehow be ahead of it, which might be easier for the seasonal viruses. I think that our our work shows great promises, but for avian viruses, it's a bit more complicated because there is so many possibilities for them to evolve through resortments, They infect so many different species. And that, you know, that changes the virus as well itself and in a way that we actually do not really know, obviously, what is needed to adapt to infect a certain species of shorebird or a certain species of duck. You know, this is something, of course, that we really do not know. So, yeah, I think there is a lot that's being done. You know, I don't want to I don't want to end up this on a negative tone, (laughs) but I can see that to really be prepared, we would need to step up our game, I think. For sure.
0: Thank you, Mathilde, for sharing your insights with us today. If you enjoyed listening, don't forget to subscribe to the BioInsights podcast.